This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. We're so glad that you're here. I wanted to quickly mention before we jump into this week's episode that we do have a second podcast that you've heard us talk about before. It's called Utterly Heretical. If you want to get even deeper into a lot of this stuff, it's more real, raw, honest. We don't edit it. We share stories. We share um, a little bit more unfiltered content. So if you want that, you can uh, get that all at patreon.com slash almostheretical. For $10 a month, if you support this show, you get Utterly Heretical in addition. All right, so Tim, this week, you text me, you want to talk about Matthew 15 and something that Jesus says there. What are you talking about? Yeah, so we've still got a lineup of listener questions uh, that some of you sent in that we were hoping to get to, and the conversation we had last week about uh, the clarity or lack of clarity and this whole doctrinal debate about the, the perspicuity of Scripture, uh, it made me want to jump into one of these questions, which I want to get to for a while, um, on a specific passage and specifically something Jesus says in a passage in Matthew 15. So let's play that question now. Hi, Nate and Tim. It's Tara from Brandon, Mississippi. I have a question about Matthew fifteen twenty one through 28. It's always bothered me. The faith of the Canaanite woman? Jesus was kind of mean to her, it seems like. So is there something else going on in this conversation? Is there something that we're missing? Or was he really referring to the Canaanite lady as a dog? Thanks, guys. Yeah, Nate, do you remember this story? I'm trying to. I, I don't think I really do. I'd have to look it up. So, yeah, let's read it. So Matthew 15, 21 through 28. So as a preface, this isn't necessarily a passage that I've like got a beef with and I think is like, you know, conservative interpretations of this passage or what's wrong with Christianity. Uh, but I think there are some issues here. There's some real concerns uh, that Tara voice that I totally understand and share. And then I think it'll be sort of a good case study for us to sort of follow up on our last conversation about in, in practicality, in real life, uh, is is this text clear? Is what we're supposed to do with it clear? Is what it means for us today uh, even close to clear? Or, you know, is life more difficult than that? So let's read it, and then we'll sort of jump in and, and check it out. Okay, so this is Matthew 15, 21? Yep. Okay, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Yeah, that just seems weird because it's like he's mean, 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 and then, and then suddenly right at the end, which does, to me doesn't seem like she's saying anything different than what she said before that, and it's like, oh, okay, you, you have great faith. I will heal your daughter. You know, like it just it just feels, it just feels really weird. Yeah, uh, I think what you're saying. So to you, you read that passage. Can I say one more thing too? It totally feels wrong that he's saying it's only for the Israelites. I came only for the 
for the Israelites. Like this seems, it kind of seems racist. Right. Yeah. So in your, in your reading without, you know, sifting through commentaries or scholarship or whatever, you're just reading the text, right? The plain text. Uh, it feels like Jesus is being, at first is being a jerk. The woman is just being rational and consistent, right? She needs help. <laughs> She's asking for help. Yep. And then, then there's this like dramatic change in Jesus. He goes from being a jerk to granting her the help that she's asking for. And like, almost like because it ends well, we sort of dismiss the, <laughs> the couple lines there where it seemed like Jesus was being a real jerk in a way that totally feels inconsistent with most of all the rest of how he's depicted. Right. Right. Uh, so it's weird. And I think that's just weird. Like it has the potential to be like pretty problematic right? <laughs> um, I think specifically the part Tara mentioned is the the line, the word, the, the offensive slur, dog, uh, it comes out of Jesus's mouth, right? <laughs> Jesus says that first uh, in reference to this woman. It is uh, the way the NIV translates it, it is not right. That word right there is actually just the word good. So it, it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Uh, we'll we'll talk about this in a little bit. It's actually, literally, it's little dogs. It's the word dogs with the... Oh, that's even worse. To it. I know. <laughs> it's like a dog. It's like, you know, dog. It's, it's, it can be, like, you know, they're kind of cool. Man's best friend, right? But then little dogs, don't get me started. They are essentially cats. <laughs> oh, you took this a totally different direction. Okay, so you th- you think little dogs is more offensive because uh, because you look down upon small small dogs and you're a you're a big dog guy. Yeah, I'm not even sure they're dogs. <laughs> some of them. Have you seen some where it's like you feel like if you blow on them, especially as they get older and they're the tiny dogs, you feel like if you blow on them, that's just like they're gonna and then they were no more. You know. I I'm afraid to admit admit publicly how much I'm in agreement with you. Here's the thing. I'm really, my bigger issue is with hairless dogs, no matter the size. That's what I was picturing. I think that's what I was picturing <laughs> in my head. Yeah. Yeah. So greyhounds, I'm really not a, not a fan of greyhounds. Um, but then when you go small and hairless, then that's just, that's just worst case scenario. When your dog looks like the cats from, uh, what was the Disney movie? Aristocats? Siamese cats. Oh, no. uh, oh uh, Lady and the Tramp. Yeah, uh, then that's not a good Oh, those thing. are creepy. Those are creepy. I feel like we just lost some listeners, though. <laughs> okay, God bless the the pets all around All dogs the world. go to heaven. Okay, now, I, good? when you, so let's let's try to work our way back in. When you said that's worse, um, I actually think that it could be worse in the sense that, you know, we do this all the time. Like we use the word little or small in an, in an insulting way, right? Um, to say like, you're not even a dog. You're like a little dog in the sense that like little is, is worth less, like less valuable, um, less powerful, uh, that sort of sense. So we'll actually get into like how people have tried to talk about what to do with the word dogs, whatever. But what's on the table here is the possibility that contained within the gospels, right? Contained within the, the gospel of Matthew is an open admission to a time or telling a story in which effectively Jesus 
calls a woman a, a known slur, which has a specific Jewish background, uh, all derogatory, all offensive, all insulting, and potentially just a broader cultural baggage. Is this uh, the B word? Potentially. It, at, its, at its most problematic, this is Jesus seeing a desperate outsider, ethnically different woman and essentially calling her a bitch and insinuating that he will not heal her daughter because that's what she is. So what are the grounds for this? This feels so wildly out of left field and so unlike Jesus. And uh, I don't really know what to do with it. Right. So maybe, again, so part of what I... uh, what I want to do is show how many different ways this this text can be interpreted um, and how many different pieces, and we'll just look at a handful of them, uh, pieces of information will go into telling us what to do with this passage, whether that the whether the way I just articulated this, right? The, to me, the most problematic form is is true, right? Is, is can, can I ask you a question before we do that? Have you ever heard this taught? Personally, I actually was trying to recall. I can't ever recall, at least in any way that ever had any negative meaning to me, um, hearing this taught or espoused. I don't think this this text has been like a, at least in the the world I come from, like a big key text. I and personally. Um, I actually, my suspicion is that this text is usually ignored or brushed over. I was just going to say that. I wonder if this is one of the ones, and we try to focus on the ones that are kind of ignored um, on this show, specifically with our early stuff that we did, talking about Genesis um, and all the verses with the divine beings and stuff that we've skipped over. I think I think I have heard it taught. Maybe a lesson, a kind of a general lesson is brought out, which is like, Hey, stay in your lane. Know what you're there for, right? You're there for the for the lost sheep of Israel. You know, know where you're supposed to be and the people you're supposed to be ministering to and don't don't get distracted. You know, it's maybe something general, non-specific like that. I think I might have heard it taught in that way. Gotcha. So you're sort of taking a moral example from Jesus, sort of knowing what he was supposed to be for and what he was supposed to be not for <laughs> you like the wisdom of Jesus that he's able to like figure out like who he's supposed to talk to and who he's not supposed to talk to. And that kind of that focus, you know, but it's always used in kind of like a Andy Stanley, like keys to leadership type of a, a way. Uh, yeah, I got you. So it's like, you know, Jesus took a break and got away from the crowd. So we are supposed to know how to like rest and take breaks. And then Jesus said no to people. So we got to learn how to say no to people that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So again, I, this isn't a passage that I that I have personally observed lots of conservative or traditionalist churches or Christians out there like running amok with it. I think what most people take away from this passage as a whole is is pretty good and helpful, which is the end result is is Jesus goes against sexism and racism. The end however we get there in verses 21 through 27. In the the closing line, Jesus celebrates the faith of the Canaanite woman, right? Yeah. So that's even why like in the NIV, 
the bold heading that's been inserted is is the faith of a Canaanite woman. Uh, that gets celebrated, and so most church worlds I've been have pointed out that you know there are foreigners, Canaanites mentioned in the genealogies of Jesus, and this is multiple layers of intentional uh, crafting to show how outsiders have been grafted into the family uh, of God, the people of God. So it's it's adding another layer to this sort of anti-nationalist, anti-racist uh, piece. And, um, and I've seen plenty of people who will point out, too, the way that Jesus is uplifting, empowering women in a context in which most people were not doing that, right? And specifically, it looks like in this passage, the disciples are holding to a pretty misogynistic view, a uh, pretty uh, ethnocentric, racist view in which they they don't think this woman, this foreigner woman, uh, has any place uh, at the table with Jesus. And because the end result is Jesus celebrates or at least uh, affirms her her request and then celebrates her faith uh, that Jesus is in the end overturning this stuff. So that's not a like, it's not like some of the passages that are out there that are being used to endorse patriarchy and misogyny and, and keep women out of ministry and that sort of stuff. Uh, It's really just this line (laughs) or set of lines that leads up to this quote, uh, where it seems like Jesus is calling this woman a dog. And it would sort of, to me, go like, well, okay, so it ends well, but do the means justify the ends? Like, if what we're reading is a story in which um, at some point in the story, Jesus is espousing misogynistic or racist slurs, like, don't we need to acknowledge that, right? So, and and people, some people have actually did some homework sort of just trying to see what people have done with this text. And there's one, uh, Rachel Held Evans, the late Rachel Held Evans, who we had on our show last year before she passed, um, basically stirred up controversy because she was trying to acknowledge like, Hey, this looks like Jesus was acting racist and sexist along with the disciples, along with the culture he was a part of, and that this woman had the power to change his mind. Um, at least that's a, that's somewhat apparent in this story. Um, and let's, let's talk about that basically, but that itself leaves some serious problems, right. For how we think about Jesus. Yeah. I'm wondering where that kind of went. You know, I know it was just a series of tweets. I wish it was uh, more of a full post, but yeah, I, I see that here too. Like I see that it looks like he's being racist for the people of Israel. And then also maybe she changed his mind because, even though it doesn't seem like anything changed as far as what she was saying each time at the end, ultimately he finally kind of flips and says, you know, you have great faith. And so, yeah, I'll do this. I'll grant your request. Um, The two pieces that are tripping me up and kind of causing a little bit of issues in my head are the fact that he's talking about only being for the people of Israel. Um, And then he calls her a kind of seems to call her a dog and even just this idea of like eating crumbs from my it just it comes off like i'm like i'm high and mighty and you can eat 
the crumbs that fall from my table. Yeah, sure. I mean, even that, even if you didn't hear, even if you didn't get the dog line, like just even that kind of comes off like, yeah. I mean, you say it comes off high and mighty. It literally says the woman came and knelt before him, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that he doesn't have the right to come off high and mighty. I'm just saying we don't generally see that from Jesus. Yep. It's it's different from the the usual picture. Yeah, so let's answer that question. Basically, I just sort of did a survey of academic articles, uh, some different scholars' approaches, and then other just lay interpreters and you know internet theologians kind of see how different people take this. And uh, in one sense, this isn't a case study in which you know some people make the case for for a Christian. Uh, a Christian rationale for going to war and arming ourselves while other Christians are devoting themselves to nonviolence, right? Where certain passages literally get interpreted in opposing directions. I'm not necessarily going to say this is one of those passages, but it is one in which you just see there's such a variety of what people think it's saying or how to handle it or or all that. So uh, let's just look at a a couple of things that different scholars uh, pointed out. Um. So one, like I said, is basically people will focus on uh, how it's intentional that that they left Jewish territory. The, the, the story frames this as they left Jewish territory and went outside of Israel to Tyre and Sidon, which were foreign territories, right? And then you're having this uh, encounter with a, a foreigner. So it's clearly the story is trying to set up, okay, how does Jesus and the, the gospel... Uh, relate to Gentiles. And so one line that I saw, I think in multiple places, was this is a story of how faith overcomes boundaries. And so the Canaanite woman in this brave act of of faith to sort of, uh, some people draw attention to how she asserted herself in a social setting that would have asked her to be quiet and submissive, right? They point out basically- But why is she having to overcome- Jesus. <laughs> Why is she having to, you know what I'm saying? Like, isn't he the one that's, that's flipping all of the orders and the ways that we kind of structure our society? Isn't he the one flipping the power? The way you said that, like reminded me of Xerxes, King Xerxes, when Esther has to like, you know, get up the courage to go before this king who's not going to see it her way. Like all that, like, that's not Jesus, right? Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, totally. So uh, one scholar I read, um, she had a line that I just thought uh, was an interesting and and good way of saying it. She said, Jesus cited a boundary when he says uh, in this story, 
when Jesus says, uh, it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, uh, right after the, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Um, he is citing, uh, a boundary. It's a, an ethnic boundary, a religious boundary. And I, I think what is obviously implied here is that there is a layer of, uh, of gendered boundary as well. And so then an interesting question, which is like, what is, what is the form of this citation? Did Jesus, he felt like things were getting too scandalous, like this woman was getting too close. And so Jesus made up a boundary, right? Like, did Jesus pick this metaphor himself to communicate, hey, there's a real boundary here. You know, these disciple dudes of mine, they're the children, and you're a dog, and I need you to know that, right? Uh, or a little different, with significantly different uh, tone, is is Jesus essentially stating what he knows everybody in the room is believing, right? He knows when the disciples said, hey, we got to send her away. Um, is Is Jesus basically stating aloud the common boundary that like any Jewish man would have been thinking in his head. Right. And, and if that's what he's doing, then maybe Jesus actually is, is saying something out loud that the Jesus is a part of the culture. He's a part of that group of dudes who, who are the ones who have set that boundary or at least are the source of that boundary. But maybe he's saying it, in order to provide an opportunity for the woman to challenge that boundary, right? Yeah, but I feel like you say that a lot. Like, but what if he's actually coming at this from the standpoint of that's what was assumed at the time? But but wouldn't he? If, if that's the case, then wouldn't he have said something like, "I know you know you've believed in the past that X Y Z or dot dot dot," but I'm telling you now, like. It just seems like it would be a little clearer if that was the case. <laughs> if the first page of the Bible said everything you read hereafter will be clear and easy for you to understand in the year of our Lord, 2019, then yes, that would be a fair expectation. <laughs> part of Yeah, that's true. Part of my point here is that's just not the case. So uh, there's a third option that I think is really interesting. Uh, I've, I've wanted to sort of talk about this potentially before, but it it's certainly fitting in the follow-up of a, a question of clarity is in this passage and and many others, uh, especially in, in the New Testament, there's actually always the possibility that we are reading a quotation that we have no, no way of knowing whether it's actually a quotation. In other words, uh, it's possible that it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs is is like would have been a common phrase or a common saying that Jesus would have known other people would have said to that woman. Uh, and what Jesus is doing is quoting somebody else and in order to invite the woman to to debate with and debunk that quote. Uh and I think that's interesting, not just for this passage. It's uh, there's some scholars actually. We didn't take this tact, but uh, some scholars have come to the conclusion in the problematic uh, Paul passages about women, like when he tells women, uh, 
however to interpret this, when he makes a, a statement that sounds like he's telling women they need to remain silent, right? Um, some scholars have looked at the incongruity with that kind of phrase, with that kind of statement, and with the rest of Paul's ideology. And they said, you know what? Paul must actually be quoting somebody or quoting the, the audience that he's actually speaking to. Like he's speaking to the men in Corinth or in Ephesus, quoting them, and then uh, two lines later is going to challenge that quote. But we, would ne- we, we don't know, right? Because when we write in modern English or, or many modern languages, we have grammatical notations to indicate when we're quoting something, right? So we use quotation marks, uh, or you can use italics to clearly indicate uh, this is a reference, a citation to somebody else's words. That simply isn't the case in Koine Greek, which the New Testament is written in, uh, or in Hebrew. You don't have those. So you would have just had to know that quote, the audience listening or reading would have just had to know the quote to know that that's what was going on there. And since we don't know the quote, we have no clue if that's what's going on. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's possible. Yeah. So, and I don't, I don't even know whether I think that's likely or not. I'm not even necessarily taking a position here. Um, but I do think it's, it's absolutely within the realm of, of plausibility. Uh, so like in the new Testament, what you see when there's a direct reference to the, to scripture, which is where most of the quotations are to the old Testament, uh, sometimes they'll say, you know, as it says in the writings, in the scriptures, or as it was written, or according to the prophets, right? And then it'll, you know, have the phrase. But other times it'll just have it. Uh, it'll just put the the passage there, put the verse in somebody's words. And you're just supposed to know because you've, you've read your Old Testament for so long, you know that that's a, a quotation of something else. So it's possible that the readers in the first century would have heard this phrase. It's not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. You know, that could have been like, uh, make America great again in 2018, 2019, right? It could have been this loaded term. And essentially what Jesus is doing is throwing out this loaded term in a, in a way that is inviting this woman to, to crush it basically. And when, when she does, when she is brave to essentially, uh, with this statement saying, yes, it is, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table, it's a way of sort of assuading a, a to the cultural power over her and asserting her own identity and position uh, out from under that culture in, in a way that Jesus celebrates and, and then at least in some sense, empowers, uh, empowers that act. Okay, so that one seems like a little bit of a reach to me because why would he then have to change his mind at the end? Still has issues with like the beginning when he's not warm and open to her request which seems weird enough so do you got any better ones (laughs) well well yeah so let's so let's talk about that too so even that is interesting so it says at the beginning a canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out lord son of david have mercy on me my daughter's demon possessed and suffering terribly 
And then, this is the way the NIV translates it. It says, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. And this is another just like ambiguous part of the story. And in one form of interpretation, which is completely valid, Jesus is actively ignoring this woman. Uh, when it says Jesus didn't answer her, it's it can could be seen to be implying that Jesus is is essentially ignoring her, and she fights her way through uh, to come and basically make herself heard. Right? She literally yells, "Lord, help me!" in front of these people. So, in one reading, Jesus is being a jerk at first, and then has his mind changed. Whether this line about her being a dog is a quote or Jesus's own words. Um, and, and then one interesting thing that several scholars point out is there's some relationship between this story and two back-to-back stories in, of healings in Matthew 8. So if you look at Matthew 8, you have an encounter with a man with leprosy uh, I think the the insinuation, the implication is this is a Jewish man with leprosy. And uh, and then you have, right after that, an encounter with uh, a centurion. And I think the implication is this is a, a non-Jewish uh, Roman soldier. Uh, or if it was uh, a Jewish man working as a, a Roman soldier, that would have been even more... Uh, an enemy, right? This would have been a traitor uh, to the Jewish people. So you have these two scenes, and there are some clear uh, connections between the two. So in the f- in the first one, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, "Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean." And Jesus just reaches out his hand and touches the man. "I am willing," he said. "Be clean." Immediately, the man was cleansed of leprosy. Which, right? That's that's like what I'm kind of feeling. Like those are the those are the stories I've those are the stories I've read of Jesus. That's what I'm expecting to happen here and so when it doesn't happen that's what feels off yeah just like immediate of course i will right like no questions yeah, asked open free anyone yep yep okay so then the second story it says when jesus had entered capernaum a centurion came to him asking for help lord he said my servant lies at home paralyzed suffering terribly okay so here's the first connection the canaanite woman and the centurion it's not them who is suffering like the man with leprosy, they are coming to Jesus on behalf of someone in their household, right? So there's a a clear uh, parallel there. Centurion comes on behalf of his servant. The Canaanite woman comes on behalf of her daughter, asking Jesus for help. And then Jesus responds in the, in the NIV, this says, shall I come and heal him? Now here's a little bit of debate. Again, (laughs) interpretation, people don't know what to make of this. Um, some have interpreted this as like, hey, shall I come and heal him? You know, it's like basically Jesus is saying the same thing he said to the the leper. I'm at your service. Um, and here here's why this is, is uh, interesting. Um, if what Jesus is doing is a leper comes up to him, a Jewish man who has leprosy comes up to him, and says, hey, will you heal me? And Jesus is like, yep, right now, here we go, no problem. Um, And then another man who is an enemy of the Jewish people comes up to Jesus and says, hey, my servant needs healing. And Jesus is like, 
hey, should I come and heal him? And then an, a woman who is an outsider comes and asks for healing later. He's like, you dog. Yeah. Now I get, the, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, specifically if, if Jesus is ignoring her and then calls her a dog, right? So, but then there's debate here that basically the relationship between the centurion healing and the Canaanite healing, uh, the way we interpret each impacts how we uh, interpret the two of them, right? So if we interpret this as Jesus is quick to affirm, then it changes and makes the Canaanite woman's story worse. But many have also uh, uh, interpreted this line here differently, where it's more like, shall I come and heal him? Where basically it's more of a tentative Jesus, uh, in some people's uh, view, what Jesus is really doing is like, not really offering himself, but sort of asking the centurion, like, am I the one you're looking for? Um, and and then the centurion affirms, yes, uh, and sort of asserts himself boldly, just like the Canaanite woman does. Oh, so are you saying then it's actually the the other way around than how we're viewing it? So like the centurion would be coming and saying, hey, can you help me? And Jesus is like, not assuming that they're talking about him because why would they want one of their enemies to heal their their loved one or themselves or whatever? And then the person kind of puts it back on them to say like, are you sure you want me kind of a thing? And they're like, yeah, I, I do want you. And then they boldly, because, because of how it would look to everyone around, they boldly say, yes, like, please heal. And then Jesus says, I see your faith, that kind of thing. Is that sort of what you're getting at? I think it's it's more the statement. So when the centurion comes to him, he he calls Jesus Lord, right? So it's not like uh, the centurion looks at Jesus like a stranger on the street and is like, "Hey, I need some healing. You know of anybody?" It's it's more like this this interpretation is drawing the connection that what Jesus does in both in both settings, both healing stories, is a is offers a response to the person asking for healing. And what the response does is puts them in a position where they can either walk away or make a bold proclamation of public faith. That's kind of what he does. So in the centurion story, it's like, do you really think I'm the one? Right. And then this, this guy says yes. (laughs) And makes this uh, really humble claim of, um, I don't even deserve to have you come to my house. But right? why doesn't he do that for everyone? Well, we don't know. But uh, I'm so part one here is I'm just saying there's a connection in the in the leper story. The leper comes and kneels before Jesus, just like the Canaanite woman comes and kneels before Jesus. Then in the centurion story, you have some sort of parallel uh, where two people asking on behalf of someone in their household, and then there's sort of this ambiguous exchange. And then what happens is the way what the the person asking for healing does, their behavior and their words prove a sort of surprising act of faith, right? So what Jesus, the way Jesus responds to the centurion is, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So it's an outsider acting in a way that shows they have greater faith than the insider, which seems very similar to how we're meant to be reading uh, whatever this vignette is with the Canaanite woman, 
the end is Jesus saying to her, women, you have great faith, your request is granted. It's sort of when you read them in relationship with each other, it seems like she had greater faith than the, than the insiders, the disciples, right? That's what Jesus says explicitly in the centurion story. Which that seems like stuff Jesus is all about, right? Like that, that's very in keeping with the, the Jesus right. stories that we read. So we still have this question of like, <laughs> but did he call her a dog, right? But was he being a jerk in the process? So then there's this other bit of scholarship. I specifically saw this from uh, a woman named Lynn Kohick. Uh, we'll put the link to the article in the show notes because it is publicly available. Um, but she did some research and found that in uh, many ancient stories, you have a trope, a, a commonly used trope in which uh, a person in high power, like a king or a noble figure, a, a publicly honored person, uh, is approached by some sort of, of lower individual. And what happens in the trope is that the the person in power, the noble, in this story, it's Jesus, uh, who's who's clearly this high-powered person, right? Because people are coming and kneeling before him in these stories. Um, it's it's getting at this high power, low power, or more importantly, high honor, low honor uh, dynamic between people. And the trope is the the person, the the peasant, comes with a request. And the person in a position of high honor doesn't necessarily reject the request or ignore it, but sort of like hesitates. And then the, the person in a position of low power, so the Canaanite woman, uh, is persistent and offers another kind of argument or says something more or makes a bold statement that puts the, the noble person on, a, on the spot. And then once that action happens, then the, the person in higher power uh, gives way to the claim. And it's essentially, in this article, Kohik's article, is essentially a trope that, that exists within this culture of, of honor-shame dynamics in which uh, it's essentially preserving the honor of both figures. So, and she points out that there, you remember all those stories of, that are sort of, sort of a strange, if you think about it for a sec, a strange amount of stories and parables praising persistence in the Gospels, like the parable, the persistent widow. Right, where she just prays and prays for the same thing and then finally gets it. Like, we've used that one a lot, right, over the years? Right. Yeah, and there are a few other stories of, of persistence. And to be honest, I think it's a strange character attribute <laughs> to be uh, to be up- upholding as this, like, you know, great uh, value. But it clearly meant something in this honor-shame culture that for a person uh, to boldly, publicly keep persisting in requesting something demonstrated an act of faith. And then specifically, she's saying that what's common, clearly the the writer of this gospel is sharing in this common cultural trope that by putting the the person of of high power in a position where he doesn't really say no, but he doesn't say yes right away. It's as if to just say yes right away would have been sort of below him, uh, below his role. Uh, But he basically takes some further, uh, some further persuading uh, is, is a common trope to present a situation in which a request is asked for and granted 
but both people prove honorable in the situation. I know that seems strange <laughs> and weird. That seems really strange, yeah. Totally. But it's her way of, Kohik's uh, argument is that this is clearly part of the the reason that Matthew 15 is structured as it is, is it's to write in this sort of delay, this hesitation in Jesus's request. Unlike the leper one, right? <laughs> Where the leper comes to Jesus and he just says yes right away. That the point of this trope is that there's a delay that puts the onus of responsibility on on the requester, the Canaanite woman, to do something big and bold. And in both stories, the centurion story and the story of the Canaanite woman, it's that bold act, the persistent requesting, uh, the putting yourself out there in public where you could be rejected, but you're putting your faith on this uh, this noble person. That's the thing that's considered great faith. So again, it doesn't get rid of the potential problem of Jesus calling a woman a dog, but it does possibly explain why it seems, remember you were talking at the beginning, Nate, why it seems like Jesus is really like cold and he's a jerk, but the woman is consistent all the way through. And then there's like this change of mind, right? Um, Is potentially that's a trope that's foreign to us that was common to readers in the, the first century, um, that was a way of honoring Jesus and honoring this woman. Okay, I, I feel like we're done with that. Uh, to go any farther would feel like beating a dead horse, not to put down yet another animal on uh, this show, but <laughs> <laughs> small hairless dogs and and horses. No. Um, so these last couple episodes, we've been talking about how the Bible isn't clear, and I feel like that's the takeaway from from this episode that we're doing right now. Um, And I wanted to spend a few minutes here at the end talking about this. Okay, so if the Bible isn't clear, Tim, and what you just kind of illuminated for us, potentially illuminated, I mean, these are are options. You laid out some options of other ways to interpret. Um, Does make it sound a little bit better, but, but you had to go to academic search engines to find articles often behind paywalls, you know, and things like that to find this. Okay, so how's the average person supposed to approach the Bible then? Someone who, this isn't their full-time job studying the Bible, what are they supposed to do with this? My main question is, should we be handing this book to people, and I remember doing this in ministry, handing the book to people and saying, get alone with this book for yourself. Get alone with this for yourself, and you you see what it says. Don't let someone else tell you what it's, you, you figure out what it says. Like, is that actually good? And does that even make sense? And then the second question is like, why... Why would you go to a church? Why would you go to church where the person up front could just open this book and let's say they're they happen to be on Matthew 15:21 that that's the selection that that the the preacher got that week. Let's say it's even a, a a guest preacher. They're just filling in for a week and they got handed that and so they get up there and they give it their best shot. Maybe they didn't go to the same websites you went to and find out the context of what it's actually talking about. And they just get up there, give it their best shot. And then people in the pews, maybe visiting for the first time, been there a couple times, whatever, or the kid of a family who's been there a few times is like, forget it. I don't want anything to do with that God. I don't want anything to do with that Jesus. What, why, <laughs> why should we be subjecting ourselves to that? And then, and then should we be handing this book to people and telling them to get along with it and read it themselves? <clears throat> All right, let me try to organize uh, organize my response. Okay, for the first question, I'm going to uh, I'm going to completely forsake your request for me to ask a should question. Uh, should we get along with this thing? Wait, which one are you calling? 
Which one are you calling the first question? Because I gave them in a certain order at the beginning, and then I said them, and then I gave them in the other order at the end. So okay. which one are you saying is the so first when, one? So when you curious. ask a question that you've asked me before, we've asked this on the show before, it's like one of the most common questions we've gotten since we started the show, right? Is like, how is anyone supposed to interpret this? How should we even approach this thing, right? Like, Tim, you can study academic research, and you can, you know dabble in the biblical language, whatever. So like, but what about for the rest of us? What should we be doing? So let me, let me just take a, a pause on that should and just go like part of my point is you got to decide for yourself. Like each of us has to decide for herself. So one thing I did with this, uh, with this passage is just a quick brainstorm, just like 30 minutes on the internet. It's like, what are people doing with it? And so besides this stuff, I was just saying, these are sort of like scholarly, thoughtful approaches to how to interpret. But then there's at the, at the more of the lay level or a church level, like there were queer theologies or queer allied, uh, one article, uh, I read called itself a queer allied theology that they basically saw in this story of a desperate outsider coming to this circle of of men, of religious men, uh, in public to ask for help. And the response being Jesus calling this woman, a dog, they found, uh, a near exact parallel to the experience of LGBTQ people coming to the church or coming to the Jesus that the church professes, um, and experiencing nothing but rejection. And so they interpret this passage as a kind of uh, commentary, not that necessarily this was the original intent, right? But one thing, one way we can read it, one thing we can do with it is to allow this story to give voice to uh, the pain uh, of LGBTQ people. And also the person who wrote this article, I'll post a link to this one as well. person who wrote this article, it was important for them to, to allow this passage to be a vessel for them to say, I'm angry. I'm angry at the Jesus who in my life I have seen reject gay, bi, and trans people. And it seems like when I read this story, I'm seeing re Jesus reject this desperate woman, mistreat her, right? Then I, I literally, so that's one, that's one form. I found another one. This one cracked me up. It was from, some, from an Anglican scholar. <laughs> and this was in the like, you know, nerd web uh, beyond the paywall. Literally, the, the moral of the story for them was how the Canaanite woman as she offered Jesus this sort of like public honor, it was a, a, a model for how we form liturgy in churches. <laughs> so of like, of course, like high, high liturgy, like Anglican priests, like his whole life is like figuring out how to arrange uh, the service, right? Uh, and so he reads the story and is like, oh, this story is God's way of teaching us like what the church's liturgy should be, right? And I laugh at that. It feels like so out of left field. But like, why do I bring those up? Like one feels like totally emotionally valid to me, even though I'm not making the claim that like that has anything to do with intended, in, original intended uh, meaning. And then this other one I'm laughing at going like, why would you read this about liturgy? But like, who am I to decide what these two different people should be doing with this text, right? Um, I remember an another one when we, we asked the question of like, what to do with the, the awful misogynistic and specifically the rape texts in the Old Testament. 
And one of the things I was sad that we didn't mention is one thing that Rachel Held Evans did with uh, specifically the Hagar texts, which is, like we said, it mentioned is this incredibly problematic story in which we usually downplay that uh, that a slave was turned into a sex slave in order to to procreate for master. And I said, you know, I kind of whittled the answer down of, well, what should we do to, we need to be open to to reject or reject the ethics embedded in these texts. But also there were many other things we could do. One of the things uh, Rachel Held Evans did, which nearly brought me to tears, was wrote the story from Hagar's perspective in order to give voice to this, uh, this storified woman, whether or not a Hagar ever even existed, right? This woman of this story who was a victim in the story, she wrote a new story from Hagar's perspective in order to help women lament and grieve domestic abuse, sexual violence, basically being cast to the, to the outsides of society. It's like, does that have anything to do with why the author of those chapters of Genesis wrote that story? I don't know, but it was an incredibly beautiful thing to do with that text. But I am subjectively calling that beautiful. I would subjectively call the, the liturgy reading silly, right? I would call the, the queer reading necessary. Those are all things we can do. Whether those are things we should do, the Bible's not telling us that. The Bible doesn't have, like I said, a, an author's note or a chapter and verse that'll tell us what we should be doing with the thing. So you don't think there's some original intention from this story that we're supposed to use in our lives today? Not that there's not an original intention for why it's there, but you don't think there's necessarily every single word that we see, every single story we see has some you know, significance for us today. And so it is, to an extent, fair game to, to use those in hopefully beautiful ways to help people. Let me just answer that with, with this story specifically. I think it's, it's clear and obvious if you're doing careful, thoughtful, educated reading that the main point of this story in, in the context of the Gospel of Matthew is playing some part in the trajectory of how the, the kingdom of God through Jesus is moving from the confines of Israel out beyond those confines to, to the entire world, including the Gentiles. And there's, there's no limitation to that. I think that's the, that's the main part of the intent of this story, why the story is written. But what that means you should do, Tara, for your question, for your honest <laughs> recognition that it, that it bothers you, that it appears that Jesus called this woman a slur in the in the context of that story, what you should do with that fact, what you should do with those emotions, what you should do with all the nitty gritty bits in between, I don't know, right? That's what I'm saying. So I don't think there is no meaning. I don't think we make up the whole thing, right? I think there are, every time there are better interpretations than others. None of it's clear though. Like if, when I say something is better, that's because you know, you would have to trust me <laughs> uh, and trust my subjective intuition of, of what's good, what's bad, right? Um, if you are in a fundamentalist Baptist church, you're going to have a, a different sense of what is a good interpretation or what is a right reading, right? Everybody's going to war with each other over what these texts mean. My point one is that it simply isn't clear. 
my my point too here, kind of to on your questions, Nate, is the should question. The should question is equally unclear. What should we be doing, <laughs> right? Uh, and the, for the same reason, I think it's important to recognize how how complicated, complex, messy, ambiguous, and unclear this entire set of texts is. Even one small little passage like this, you know, I'm just bringing up. There's a variety of things people have thought about it. Uh, the reason I think that's important to acknowledge is this, the same reason I think it's in, important to acknowledge that there are a variety of answers to that question of what should we be doing when we approach this thing, right? <laughs> and just like I said, it was basically a 500-year-old a construct that was from the, the history of the Reformation that made us think that the Bible was clear, Right. Any answer to that question of what should we be doing this with this thing is also a construct that comes from outside of the Bible. So it, to me, it doesn't really matter what I think. My main point is like the actual answer to that question is going to come from each one of us deciding for ourselves uh, how to approach this text. Whether we like that or not, there's no rule book telling us that this rule book is a rule book. All right. But can we just agree that we should probably stop telling people, not you and I, but like people people in charge should stop telling people to get alone with the Bible and try to figure out what it means for themselves, right? Right. I think you are perfectly fine getting alone with your Bible as long as you're humble, right? Which is just basic. Just be humble with how difficult this thing is. Uh, I hope you can hear <laughs> me uh, acknowledge how little I understand this text, right? Even while I'm trying to uh, get a grasp on it more and more. Um, but it kind of goes back to that, the thing we talked about at the end of the conversation last time, Nate, which is like, what is the motivation driving that thing in the first place, right? And for many of us, it was this greater idea called biblicism or that's that's come to be often referred to as biblicism, which largely was that the Bible was the the way to God, right? And that's why we had to go get alone to, to under that's why we had to go get alone to read this text. And therefore the text had better be clear, right? It ignore whether it was or wasn't. It just better be because that's how we access God. That's how we uh, are Christian. And what I've been what I've been arguing is like, let's undermine that motivation and and replace you know, the main thing is like how you are close with God is, is you and your life, <laughs> your community, your experiences, your senses, you know, Jesus, the spirit, all of those things. It's not a, it's not a book and it's not your perfect understanding of a book. Um, but you can go get alone with this book and try to understand it. Right. Uh, but even, even modern literature, you know, go get alone with East of Eden or go get alone with the brothers Karamazov don't think you're going to understand it, right? You could read those books, which are just individual novels written in, in cultures far closer to ours, one of them written in a language that is our own, and you'd still be a fool to think that you could read it a couple times through and get everything out of it, right, or understand it perfectly. So some of it's just humility, and then some of it is like, the, I'm, I'm trying to challenge the, the engine of biblicism, which is saying that the, the whole thing uh, is through uh, our clear understanding of this this clear text. But you asked a second question, which I feel far more passionate about, 
which is about should we be going to churches and subjecting ourselves to people who are who are claiming to have the objective uh, interpretation of God's will and God's word. Now, I don't want you to give away too much here because I, one of our upcoming episodes is going to be centered around this question, I think, of what do we do? Because it's one of the top questions we get, I'd say, when we do our almost heretical conference calls with our Patreon supporters and when we just, the emails we get from y'all, it's this question of like, you know, where should I, should I be going to church? Like, what should I be doing? Um, it feels weird not to, like all that type of stuff. So I want you to give like a teaser, but I also want to have like a larger conversation about this. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, the teaser is the reason I feel more passionate is so everything I just said about how each of us individually, no matter what our vocation or role or whatever, like we just need to have this this humble relationship with the Bible that admits its complexity, admits uh, that it isn't the end-all, be-all, you know, goal for our spiritual lives, whatever. Um, I, I think that's probably what's what's healthiest for us as individuals. So... I obviously have big issues with anybody who stands on a stage or behind a pulpit or behind a screen of some sort and claims a kind of divine authority, right? Which, I mean, that's that's what the a pastor in a, in a church, in, in the American context at least, that's what a pastor means. It's the person with the most authority in the room. Um, if, if you're in that role and you don't have that kind of humble uh, open-handed approach to the Bible, then I think you are, you are playing with, with a dangerous weapon, right? Um, that is when I think it's, it's inevitable if one human being, no matter how much I, I may like and admire that human being, if, if a human being stands up on a stage and even if they don't say this, if they accept this belief from others that they have a superior access to interpretation of the one true source of God, this Bible, um, they are taking on a mantle that I think is is unjust and unethical in its own right. Like I don't think anybody should should hold that kind of power or leverage. Uh, if I think I've, what I've seen in my own life is evil people try to get that kind of power, and good people become evil because of a life where they've had that power. Uh, I've seen both of those things happen. And so I would say if, if that's the relationship, if that's what the church is, if that's the relationship between the pastor and everybody who's not a pastor, uh, if that's the way the Bible's being used, even like with this, with this passage we talked about, most of the, the interpretations fit within my sense of decency and goodness, right? Most of the interpretations are like anti-racism, anti-sexism. It's not like many people are out there using these as as battery ram uh, texts. Um, even so, if if you're in a church where you happen to like, you know the the way that <laughs> the texts are being interpreted, right, and it and it has a good feeling to it, and it fits your sense of morality or whatever. If there's such a massive power dynamic or power differential between uh, any one person and all the rest because of the way the Bible is being put forth, right? Where one person or a team of people or whatever has to be the interpreter. Uh, 
then I just think it's a it's a dangerous situation and it's a mistaken situation. Like I said, I wish the reformers had had given the power to the people instead of the book. And what I'm trying to make the case for is that's like that's that is a ready and available option right now. <laughs> so why one way of framing it is just so why choose another option? Why choose a Roman church that claims one dude has all the power? Why choose a Southern Baptist church, which claims the book and therefore the interpreters of the book have all the power. Why not choose a world in which you and your friends and your brothers and sisters and everybody is equally empowered? Doesn't mean it's all equally clear. doesn't mean you know everything you need to know. It's going to be messy, but you're all mutually empowered to figure it out together. Why not choose that road? No, I like it. Um, but I already can hear all the questions coming in. I can already hear all the people talking about, oh, so you're talking about the house church movement. I can already... I can already hear all of that, and so I want to have a large conversation where we talk about church. We talk about what are you, what are we supposed to do there? Uh, what's what's good? What are good wise decisions to make, especially for those of us that have children and are trying to think about how to raise them in something and not just give them nothing to hold on to. So, what are we what are we supposed to actually do when it comes to the church topic? And so uh, you're going to want to make sure that you are subscribed to Utterly Heretical, our second podcast, because we're going to have that conversation there. And you can do that at patreon.com slash almost heretical. Um, just join as a contributor to the show and you get access to that second podcast as well. So thankful to all of you that do give. I think we're up to like 109 or 10 patrons now, which is super um, encouraging, I think, as we as we do the show, just to know that there are those who are um, in support of the work that we're doing and also helping us continue to do this in our free time. If you have questions, thoughts, pushbacks, or if Tara's question triggered a question that you also have, by the way, thanks Tara for that question. We'd love to hear that and you can send that to us at contact at almostheretical.com. We read every single email that we get and we love hearing from you. All right, we will see you next time. All right, hope this was helpful. Peace, y'all. Bye.